Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Towards the end of the Bible, and we're looking at chapter 4. This fall, actually, we've been walking through this ancient sermon from James. James is the pastor of one of the first communities of Jesus, what we today would call a church. And this is one of his sermons, which gives us, I think, a unique look into the beauties of the earliest church and also the uglies of the earliest church. So we read in Acts chapter 2, Acts is kind of a a historical uh, kind of look at the earliest church, and we see in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers And just imagine this community. And all came upon them, the scriptures say. And they had all things in common. And so we read about the earliest uh, church, the earliest community of Jesus, and we see its beauty in Acts chapter 2. But Pastor James here tends to highlight the, the uglies or the struggles of the early church. The same church we just heard about in Acts chapter 2. See, James is a hopeful Realist. He doesn't sugarcoat the ugly, the ugly realities of this fallen world. He's realistic. But he's hopeful. He doesn't let the disorder and the dysfunction have the final say. He's a hopeful but realistic pastor. And that is so true for us this morning in the text we're going to read. He's going to be realistic about the dysfunction that can exist within God's family. But he will not leave us without hope. So let's read the text together from chapter 4. This is verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scriptures say... He, that's God, yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He 
will exalt you. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here together, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. And Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information this morning, but that we would encounter you, Jesus. And that we would see the beauty of Jesus. And so that our hearts would, by the time this is over, be singing of your beauty, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we ask this. Amen. So a few years ago, my street, Timberman Road, was repaved. Suddenly, this jagged street became smooth as butter. But now, uh, my street looks like a war zone. See, a few months ago, I got a small notice at my house that there would be some gas line repair in our neighborhood. <laughs> and I was hoping it would be kind of this quick and painless, or maybe does not apply to our particular block kind of thing. But let me tell you, there has been literal upheaval in our neighborhood and on our street for months now. So what was once smooth, and we were actually celebrating how smooth and how beautiful our, our pavement was, that smooth pavement is now torn up. And so now, as I speak this morning, there are diggers sort of parked where my car should be parked. Which is cool if you're a young kid. Orange traffic cones everywhere. The road is covered with steel plates. We had such a smooth, beautiful road that the gas people assured me that it was very bad underneath. Okay? And I'm taking their word for it. So they're digging it all up. It's ugly, it's messy, but apparently it's healthier, it's safer, it's better for everyone. To take it on faith. This is my relationship with God in a nutshell. Because if I'm honest, my external life is smooth, it's paved, or at least I pretend it is. But underneath, at the heart level, there is dysfunction. The theologian John Calvin, he once said that every human heart is an idol manufacturing plant. Uh, we're so good at building idols in our heart. We don't necessarily need to worship an image or a statue to worship an idol. They can also exist in the depths, underneath the surface, below the smooth pavement in our thoughts, in our affections, in our desires, in our values, in our heart. So when I say that underneath the smooth pavement of my life is a heart in need of repair, what I mean specifically is that underneath the smooth pavement of my heart is a tangle of idols. So let's talk for a minute about idols of the heart. Number one, God alone is God. God alone is God, and we are made for God. And that means that God alone deserves our love. God alone deserves
deserves our obedience. God alone deserves our loyalty. God alone, in other words, deserves our heart. And it means that we are most human. We are most alive. Yes, we are even most free when we give God those things. Our heart. That's number one. Number two, though, is that whenever we give something else, our heart, our loyalty, our, our desire, our whatever it is, our obedience, our love, we have made an idol in our heart. An idol is when a created thing takes the place of the Creator. It's been said, idolatry of the heart is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. See, even the very best things in life, the best things in God's world, are meant to be not ultimate, but penultimate. Next to ultimate. There's only one ultimate, and that's God. But whenever we put very good things, like children, family, work, Sex, friendship, comfort, food, whatever it is, in God's place, we have made them into idols. And so to quote the Apostle Paul in Romans, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the create the creature instead of the creator. We worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. And there's at least three problems, at least, about heart idolatry, or idols of the heart. Number one, it's an accusation against God. Don't you see, basically you are saying, God, you are not good enough, you are not wise enough, you are not satisfying enough. Idolatry is itself an accusation. Number two, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It may work for a little while, but in time, idols of the heart overpromise and under-deliver. And number three, they enslave us. They don't work, so we keep coming back for more. And, and like addiction, idols enslave, which means they make us less free. They make us less alive. They make us often do things that we would never do. Except in obedience to this particular idol. Idols of the heart narrow the heart. They don't enlarge it. Because we were made for God. Our hearts were made for God. And anything less than God, even the best of things that He made, will narrow our heart. Make us less alive, less human. Dan Doriani, he asks us to imagine two runners running the same race. For one, there is a joy motivation, and for the other, there is a deep fear motivation. So maybe uh, you've seen Chariots of Fire. Full disclosure, I've not. I've actually not seen this. Uh, I feel like I have because how often I hear stories about this, this movie. But you might say the first runner is like Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire who says, God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. The joy motivation. The worship motivation. But then on the other hand, the other runner might say, like Harold Abrams, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. So Harold makes a good thing, running fast, an ultimate thing. It justifies his existence. Eric makes a good thing, running fast, a penultimate thing. 
Something that is a gift from God to enjoy. That is the difference between worship in the heart and idolatry in the heart. What or who is ultimate in your heart? It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be sports. It can be anything. Well, like my road, in order to find out, you've got to do some upheaval and some digging. Years ago, I came across a list of uh, diagnostic questions from Pastor Tim Keller that helps us do that digging and discover some of these idols of the heart. And so I'll just go through this list because I find it really helpful, actually. It's this. Life only has meaning if. Fill in the blank, okay? Your life only has meaning if, or I feel okay at my core if I have power and influence over others. That would be a power of I am loved and respected by fill in the blank, and approval by. About I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life, a comfort I I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. A control I People are dependent on me and need me. A helping. I only have meaning in life. If I'm completely free from obligations and responsibilities to take care of something. Sort of an independence idolatry. Or how about a dependence idolatry? I only have meaning in life if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Or I'm I'm highly productive and I'm getting a lot done. A work idol. I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work and accomplishment. I'm only okay if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. A materialism idol. I'm only okay if I'm adhering to my religious moral code and accomplishing all of its activities. A religious idol. I'm only okay if this one person is in my life and happy to be there, and or happy with me. An individual person idol. I feel I'm totally independent of organized religion, and I'm living a self-made morality. In your religion, idolatry. My race and my culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. A racial, cultural idol. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. An inner ring idol. My children or my parents are happy with me. Family idolatry. Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. A relationship I am hurting in a problem, and, I, and only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. A suffering. My political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence. An ideology idolatry. I have a particular kind of look or body image, an image idolatry. Those are really searching um, statements, if you're like me. There's one in particular that really drills down into my idol factory heart. And the question goes like this. What would make you inordinately angry or inordinately anxious if it was suddenly taken away or blocked? See, beneath everyday anger is usually a blocked idol of the heart. 
So I get mad at drivers in traffic um, because I idolize control. I'm tempted to idolize control. And so when people are slow, I feel out of control. Um, I'm also tempted, tempted to idolize uh, approval. And if being late or if missing something would make them upset with me, then I get mad at the people blocking that idol. I also idolize comfort. I don't like confrontation. So the sort of distance between two cars makes it sort of more open and acceptable for me to be mad at the other driver. I don't know who they are, and they're not going to have to see me tomorrow. See, this question can be such a helpful tool to find how good things are becoming ultimate things in our heart. It's like a jackhammer that gets below the smooth concrete of our life. And the thing is, this question is really straight out of James. Now, I want you to take a look again at the text that we just heard aloud. Verses 1 and 2, I'll read again. Because James does this. He goes beneath the surface to the heart level. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Within you. You desire within you and do not have, so you murder. You covet within you and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So these ancient Christians were boasting about their maturity and wisdom. That was last week. But they were fighting with each other. They were murdering each other. Literally, I, I really hope not. I really hope not. But at least in their words and thoughts. And so in verse 1, James wants them to dig below the surface. The wars that they are starting with each other have everything to do with the wars that are going on inside their heart. Verse 1. See, James is a soul doctor. He's a soul doctor. He goes underneath the surface of their life. James wants to not just say, stop being angry, stop fighting. He doesn't do that. That would be on the surface. He goes down deep. He uncovers what might be below. And he says, here's why you are so angry. And the answer he gives is what we're calling idolatry of the heart. The word he uses is epithumia, okay? Epithumia, which basically means an over-desire. And you see it in verse 2. You desire, there's that word, you desire. Epithumia, you desire and do not have. Desire can be a good thing when it's directed towards God, who is ultimate. But whenever that desire is misdirected to other things, even the best of things, it is idolatry, it is epithemia, it's an over-desire, it's an inordinate desire. And the reason they are fighting so much is because their epithemias, their over-desires, their misdirected desires, they have been blocked because that's what James says. You desire and do not have. Your idols are being blocked. Somebody's standing in front of what you deeply, deeply, deeply think you need. Is it position? Is it possessions? As one scholar asks. We don't actually know. But we do know what James says. Which is that they have a deep inner desire that's being blocked. 
Therefore, therefore, they fight. See, James is very comfortable with going really deep. When he sees external issues, infighting in the church community, he doesn't say, stop fighting with each other. He says, look underneath the surface. Notice the idols in your heart. And so what James does is he gives us an anatomy of the human heart. He's a realist. But again, he's a hopeful realist because he also, in this passage we heard, gives us an anatomy of God's heart. And he believes that going deep into both, both our heart and God's heart, is the only pathway to deep and true change. See, James can say, stop fighting, stop fighting, it's not worth it, and they might change for a day or a week or two. But James knows, because he's a soul doctor, and because, you know, he's, he knows Jesus, who always went down into the depths. That won't likely bring lasting true change. So James says, we're going to go deep. We're going to go deep into your heart and the mechanisms of your heart, your sinful yet redeemed heart, and we're going to go deep into the heart of God. And that alone will bring change. So let's do that. Let's follow James's lead and just take some time going deep into our hearts and then deep into the heart of God. First, James invites us to take a deeper look into our hearts in this passage. What we discover there is often not very pretty. There are idols of the heart. You should see the things that the construction crew is sort of digging up on Timberman Road. In the words of one writer, James shows us our frustrated desires or our frustrated idols. These idols of the heart wreak havoc on two things. Number one, our relationship with others. They make us dysfunctional in our human relationships. These frustrated desires cause quarrels and fights, James says, and even murder. Now, they were probably not murdering each other in church, like manslaughter, we think. But James implies that the same root idol that results in manslaughter is at work. In a church squad. That's one. They desire but do not have. This happens to us too. We desire fill in the blank but do not have. It's blocked. And so we will do whatever it takes to get it. And we will do this even if it means hurting others to get it. Especially those standing in the way but the things we deeply want. And we can do that in Jesus' name. It makes us dysfunctional, idols of the heart, in our relationships with others. It also makes us dysfunctional in our relationship to God. James says in verses 2 through 4, You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. So these people were sort of godly on the surface. We know this from what James says about them in the earlier chapters. They were kind of godly on the surface and they had respect in the community. But underneath this veneer was a dysfunctional relationship with God. In three ways. First of all, they cut God off. 
Some of them were not talking to God at all, James says. You don't ask. You're not talking to God. I mean, for all their God talk, they aren't talking to God. They never ask God His opinion on things. And this happens when our relationship to God is surface only. What we really love is fill in the blanks. So we, actually, our prayer life just goes away. Second of all, idolatry in the heart causes us to use God. Some were talking uh, to God in verse 3, but they were doing so in the wrong way, James says. They were using God. Verse 3 says they were spending their words in prayer toward not the Lord and the Lord's priorities, but towards their idols, towards their ends. In other words, God was a means to an end in their prayer life. Their ultimate desire was something else, and so they were just using God as a pipeline to that other thing. I can speak to this as a pastor. If you're insecure, and you desperately want to feel wise, and you desperately want to experience the respect of other people, then one surefire way to get those things is by becoming a pastor. And the most terrifying realization for any pastor is that someone can serve God, not for God, but for someone else. And the same is true of God's people. Sometimes we serve God to get access to the things we really want. There was a neighborhood kid growing up, uh, in, when I was growing up, and um, he was one of the first and only among us who got a Super Nintendo. And uh, so kids would become friends with him because they wanted to play Super Mario 3. They didn't really want to be his friend, right? We know this. They wanted what he had. What he gave them access to. That's how idolatry makes our relationship to God dysfunctional. We essentially use God. And the third, idolatry in the heart makes us cheat on God. James says in verse 4 that their idolatry makes them adulterous. And then he says, friends with the world. And so, two analogies here James uses. Friendship and marriage. Friendship and marriage. Which in those days had a lot in common, actually. A lot more than today. In those days, uh, you didn't have a ton of friends, but you had a few really committed friends. And like marriage, friendships had a deep level of faithfulness and commitment. I'm actually listening to an album right now by uh, James Blake that is about broken friendships. It's about broken friendships. And lots of reviews on this album point out that it sounds like a breakup album. Apparently he's happily married, and, you know. So what's he writing about? He's writing about broken friendships. But it sounds like... It sounds like a breakup album. Why? Because I think he's more in tune with friendships as the Bible says friendships. And I'm learning a lot, actually, from this album. Because we in our culture kind of view friendships as sort of this take-it-or-leave-it thing. 
But the Bible views friendships as a deeper thing. And so here, James says, idolatry of the heart is like cheating on your spouse or backstabbing your friend. We are sharing our delight and our loyalty and our commitment with others that only God deserves. Idols of the heart wreak havoc on our relationships and in our relationship with God. They're under the surface, but they destroy. Uh, they destroy our relational life. And so James is going to urge us to go deep, to dig up the concrete, no matter the mess, and ask hard questions. Are we using God right now? Do we love Him, or do we just love this stuff? Are we cheating on Him? Are we giving to other things, other relationships, other ideas, ideologies, our loyalty? Our heart. And James here in this passage, when he talks about their infighting as a church, he's telling us that one surefire way to discover where your idols are is by investigating your anger, investigating your fighting, investigating your murderous thoughts. Usually there is a frustrated desire underneath that, a frustrated, as we're calling it, idol underneath that. Something you think you deeply need to be okay. Your okayness is rooted in something other than God that's blocked, and it causes a kind of frustration, or a frozen frustration. James wants us to go there. He wants us to go there. He wants us to do, do the hard work of locating that, the source of that. Because we can't heal without proper, deep diagnosis. If we take the wrong medicine, it might even make things worse. And so often that's what we do. But it's the truth with also the soul. We need a proper diagnosis in order to heal. And that's what James does. He goes deep. Kind of right where it hurts. But that's what we do. So he goes deep into our hearts. But he doesn't leave us there. Remember, he is a, he's a hopeful pastor. He's not just a realistic pastor. He's a hopeful pastor. And so he invites us to take a deep look into our heart and its brokenness and dysfunction, but he also invites us to take a look, and please don't leave now, hang on, into God's heart. James is a good pastor. Painfully accurate diagnosis. Painful. But he only gives us the therapy that actually heals. The heart of God. The heart of God. There's actually a beautiful symmetry in this passage. On the one hand, James dives deep into the sinful heart, but then on the other hand, he dives deep into God's holy heart. And what do we find? We find in God's holy heart a heart that is jealous for you. That's verse 5. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns Jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Like the very core of who you are? Like all of you, not just the best of you. Like he yearns jealously for that. We use God. He yearns for us. We downgrade God to a glorified vending machine. He says, I want to commune with you. That's why he made the world, not because he needs us, but because he wants 
us. He loves us. And when we run away, we don't, you know, God doesn't say what else. You're lost. Yearns, jealousy, freedom. So that's what we see when we take a deep look. We also see a heart that is gracious to you. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Our hearts are idol factories. God knows this. And yet gives more grace. Grace is undeserved gift. We don't deserve the eternal life he offers, but he gives it anyway. And that's Scandalous to us. It doesn't equate, it doesn't compute in our minds. It's a heart. So be it that doesn't compute in your mind. His grace. And then we see from James that it is a heart, the heart of God, that is faithful to you. God entered into a marriage covenant with his people. And he does not break his vow. He is faithful even when we are not. Notice that James doesn't tell this church and us with them to do better. Instead, he points us to the faithful heart of God. He is faithful. He points to his faithfulness, to his jealousy over us, his grace to us, because James knows that these realities and these realities alone will change us into being more faithful to him. At the core, deepest level of who we are, not just our behavior. For instance, when I would, uh, want my dog to stop barking at the construction workers outside the window, I distract him with something better. That's James's kind of training strategy with the church. He wants us to stop cheating on God. And to do this, he distracts us with something better. The faithfulness of God. And that's our strategy for change as well. Do you want change? Real deep change. Two things. Bust up the concrete. What's below the surface, friends? What are the idols, the cravings, the inordinate desires? Where is your love flowing? Where is your desire flowing? Where is your affection flowing towards? Is it towards the throne of God, the gracious throne of God, or is it towards other things? And, and just do that work. It's a lifelong daily work. But then, but then, receive God's more grace, His scandalous grace. When you see that idol at work, consider how God is faithful to you in that moment. And if that does not warm your heart, change your heart, then nothing on earth will. Look at God's faithfulness to you even when you yourself are seeking after other things. That is scandalous grace. That is the more grace that James is referring to here. And Jesus is proof. If you need to look at something to really come to realize this and not just think it, then look at Jesus. And you know what? The Lord's Supper is a really good way to even just see this sort of commitment in real tangible ways as well. 
If we need things, we need to come into this community and experience it. But Jesus is proof of this. He came precisely because God is jealous for you. He came while we were what? Sinners. Why? Because he had to? No. He wanted to. He wanted to. Jesus proof that God wants to be in a forever relationship with you. So what do we do in response? James is such a practical pastor. He gives us ten verbs in what we read this morning. Ten verbs, ten invitations for us to respond to God's lavish grace. Holy habits that can be summarized in three ways. Number one, drop your defenses. James says, submit yourselves, therefore... In light of this, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, drop your defenses. Own your need. And find the sweetness of submission to God. Uh, When we submit to God, we are most safe. Because He alone is omnipotent, all-powerful. But He never abuses His power. And so we can submit to Him. One author says, we are vulnerable to God's will. Number two, deep communion. James wants us to take advantage of the deep communion that God offers his people. James says, in what remains in this text, he says, resist the devil, who, by the way, wants to harm you and is perfectly happy with a smooth exterior paved road, but idols deep underneath. Perfectly happy because that detracts you from God. That gives all of your um, affections towards other things. Perfectly happy. And James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the way you do that is by what? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. On the one hand, God is always near to those Uh, He is uh, redeemed by the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, we can experience the intimacy that he yearns for. Uh, We can experience that by drawing near with all of who we are. We are like the prodigal son. Suli read for us this morning. We run back to God. We draw near to God. And we see him running harder and faster towards us. And that might be you this morning. Look at his faithfulness. Look at it. And then comes the deep repentance. The real repentance. Not the feigned repentance like the prodigal son sort of ginned up before he went to his father. But the deep thing, the real thing that breaks you. The real thing that breaks you. That's the rest of this passage and what it's referring to. Cleansing and purifying, uh, being wretched and mourning and weeping. This is repentance language. These are things that cannot be faked. 
A deep purification happens. Purity in this passage means a single-mindedness or a single-heartedness or even a single-soulness. So when it says double-minded, you double-minded. That is, the word there is actually double-souled. It's a word that James kind of makes up and it's a brilliant word because it means that our hearts are not united. They're sort of flowing in different directions and isn't that what idols of the heart is? We have a double mind, a double soul. And what James is saying is, when we see the faithfulness, the sort of like, I am God and I'm pouring out my, my faithfulness to you. It is united in my jealousy over you. And when we see that, we, our heart breaks. And it unifies, it knits together our divided heart. As the psalmist says, unite my heart, O Lord. That is, that is repentance. It's deep repentance. We turn from our idols and we unite our heart's affections back to Him. Repentance is essentially moving from double soul to single soul every moment of our life. But it's deep repentance because it happens at the heart level. We don't just say sorry for the surface level stuff that we did or we didn't do. We mourn, like this text shows us, the divided heart underneath it. And that's true humility. That, I, I heard someone say recently that true humility is elusive. It's hard to find. Because you can't um, force humility. Or manufacture it. Because what happens? You get proud of your humility. <laughs> no, humility, true humility, is when you are mourning the divided heart and yet astonished at God's single-hearted love towards you. That keeps you low. And God promises in this text to exalt this kind of humility. So let's go deep, friends. Let's go deep into our heart, but also deep into God's heart. It's been pointed out uh, that this section that we're reading ends and begins with before the Lord, or before God's gaze. His face, His knowing eyes. He sees all of us to the very depths. But that same knowing eyes loves us. Friends, we will not change, really change, unless we are met with those eyes. Can I say that again? We will not really change unless we are met by those eyes. The eyes that know us fully. And see the divided heart. And yet, love us. To that same thing. If you meet those eyes, you will be humble. Can I say that again? If you meet those eyes, those all-knowing and yet all-loving eyes... You meet them. You are humble. God can know all of you. All of your division. And love you in that because of Jesus. Jesus was the only one to live with perfect fidelity to God. As God in flesh. Why? 
because you are not. And he came to reunite you to the heart of God. He lived that perfect fidelity for you. The cross of Jesus, are you confused about what the cross is or what the cross does? Let me help clarify you. It means this. Jesus took on the penalty, the sanctions of our unfaithfulness, of our undivided heart. That's how jealous he is for you. How he wants you to be united again to himself. Those eyes, those eyes that see you and yet love you in Jesus, that makes you humble. And that is your exaltation. So Lord, we pray that we will be met by those eyes this morning. We will be met by those eyes. Your eyes. Love us fully and know us fully. Because of Jesus. And it's in his name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.